Good morning and or good evening for those of you who are joining us online. Uh, this video is my way of apology for the uh, terrible internet connectivity issues we had during this week's uh, worship service. Uh, as best I can tell, sometime during our first hymn, the internet cut out and didn't come back in until we were just about ready to start communion. So if you were watching online, not only did you miss our regular discussion, but you missed all of the scripture readings, the sermons, the prayers, and stuff like that. Obviously, one cannot go back in time and re-record a worship service that just plain did not happen. But what I can do is re-record the sermon for you at least, and our scripture as well. So thank you again for joining us. I apologize for the technological issues, but this is our sermon and our word of God for today. Now our first scripture reading for today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 1 through 6. Now this is a reading that I'm willing to bet many of you have heard before. It's one of the better known readings out of Isaiah. This is uh, one that's been turned into music. Uh, I've directed a choir singing from this passage before. Uh, high school kids, really a lot of fun. It's well known. But let's think about it anyway, and let's listen for the word of God. From Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 6. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba, shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. Now our second reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew and is exactly the reading one would expect for today. It comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and is a story about some... Uh, particular individuals, three of them, who have come to witness, or at least pay homage, to the birth of Christ Jesus the King. Let us listen for the word of God. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, 
For so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so I may also go and pay him homage. When they had learned, or when they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. You know... Many years ago, I had the, uh, the very unique pleasure of having an evening's conversation with uh, a colleague of mine in ministry who is just extremely well-known, one of the more venerated and accomplished pastors of several generations before me, definitely an older man. Uh, and we got to talking about how to pastor, how to be a good pastor. And uh, one of the things he said just made me laugh. He said, our job is unique because the whole point of what we're doing is if we do our job right, we're making other people do our job for us. <laughs> of course, I laugh because it's not like the laziest thing a pastor might ever say. But when I thought about it, and as he explained it to me, he was right. Like the role of the pastor is to encourage and to uplift the people around you, to teach them and inspire them and to move the people of your congregation in ways that they can interact with God, that they can help others, and not to, of course, do all the things yourself. But there's that expectation, isn't there? Right? There's that expectation that the pastor is the one with the training, the pastor is the one with the knowledge, so of course they're going to do all the teaching and the reading and the scripturing and the, all the stuff. But the truth of the job is very, very different. Our expectations are very different from the reality because... Man, expectations are weird things. And they're especially weird when it comes to authority. Now, we expect people who have authority or are in positions of authority, we expect them to act in certain ways. We expect them to do certain things, say certain things, look a certain way, dress a certain way, things like that. When we imagine a king, for example, there's an image that forms in our minds immediately that comes complete with behavior patterns, uh, the things one might say or do, and of course, the things one might not say and do as well. And that same process, that same mental process happens when we think of CEOs, wealthy people, your boss at work, parents even, uh, maybe even pastors, perhaps, if we're being honest about things. <laughs> You know, truth be told, I have made a, a very good part of my career based on this actual idea. I mean, I know what the expectations are for a white, male, English-speaking pastor from the United States, and I am not above using 
or breaking those expectations in service of God's greater work here in the community or in the world at large. But whatever the position is you're talking about, all of the different expectations we might have, all of these images in our head, they're all drawn from roughly the same place in our collective hearts and minds, that shared understanding we have of what authority looks like. Authority, we think, is part and partial to power. We think authority is something that is held by those who act with command, who speak with the weight of presumption. Every word that leaves their mouth filled with firm and confident certainty that they will be heard, that their words prioritize and made real by the world and the people around them. A person with authority is someone who is unquestionably the boss, someone who tells rather than asks, who dismisses rather than debates, and who is in all possible ways visible. To many of us, authority is like the, the unquestioned and unearned arrogance of a CEO, or worse, that of a petulant middle manager. Someone who fully believes that everything they have is theirs, and it's theirs by divine right and blessing rather than the corrupt gift of privilege or the whimsy of uneven chance. So when we read today's passages, both of which are full of expectations of authority, both divine and human, this is what we kind of imagine we're looking for, isn't it? When we read about the, the glory of the Lord being risen upon you, we imagine that glory much as Isaiah did, as this kind of luminescent explosion of authority. We imagine nations gathering to our light and kingdoms coming to the brightness of the dawn because God's glory gifts us with this sense of authority, the expectation that the abundance of the sea will be brought to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. In our minds, authority goes hand in hand with entitlement. So when we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, very, very easy for us to immediately determine who in this story has authority. And clearly, it is King Herod. He's the king, right? And he's not just the king, he's the one who acts immediately with that presumption of authority, of divine favor. He speaks with that sense of arrogant presumption, of entitlement, knowing that his words will be made manifest, his desires will be fulfilled because it is his right. Every line of dialogue the man speaks is just dripping with the sense of control. He calls the wise men to him. He receives from them the information that he wants, and he commands them on their way with instruction to return with the results of their search. Never mind that they're foreign emissaries from a foreign country who do not answer to him. He sends them out with command, confident that they will do what he says because he is king. He has a authority. The systems of the whole world are at his beck and call after all. Why wouldn't they? But these wise men, on the other hand, whew, these guys are operating on a totally different level. I mean, we often use the term magi out of the Greek when we're referring to them, but even that right there is a severely loaded term. If you know your English well, you know that magi comes from the same root as our words like magic or mage. They're wizards. What we're saying is that they're wizards. I mean, at least that's what it seems to suggest, but the truth is, it's not really what they were, of course. I mean, they, they weren't really magicians or mages. 
So kings, maybe? No, no they weren't really kings either. They, they were definitely learned men. We know that much. But calling them wise men is a bit generic, really. We use the term wise men often enough because we don't have anything better, but it's still very generic. What we know is that they weren't Jewish. I mean, obviously, they came from lands far further east. We know they were men of education and a sort of status, but they weren't politicians or members of the ruling caste from their nations of origin. What we actually do know is that they were religious leaders. In particular, these guys were religious leaders from a faith practice out east that combined worship of the divine with kind of a primitive form of stellar cartography. <clears throat> so it wouldn't be really accurate to call them astronomers, precisely, since what they were doing wasn't motivated by science or discovery. But it also isn't appropriate to call them astrologers either because, well, for much the same reason. What they did was religious, but they also did have a fairly firm grounding in the observational sciences of the time. <laughs> I love this. I, get, I do this every year, and I, I can't help but bring this up because it's my favorite thing. The, there's really only one honest-to-God appropriate term to use here, and I got to tell you, it just tickles my final fantasy-loving heart because the appropriate term for these guys is astrologians. People who watch the stars with scientific precision, religious reverence, and a knack for discernment that borders on the mystical. That's actually the right term. Love it. Of course, having said that, there is also, <laughs> there's a totally different sermon we could have here on the fact that these non-Jewish astrologians who had no real concept of Jewish tradition or practices, they had no grounding in the history or the stories of God's people, no understanding of the concept or the context. They had no direct connection to the biblical narrative at all, really. And they're just able to look into the skies and see that Jesus is here. I mean, these guys don't know God the way that we do. They never learned our history. They never heard our stories. They certainly had no idea what a Messiah was because they come saying, oh, there's a new king in town. But when God steps into the world, actually arrives, these guys are the first ones to see it. They didn't have the benefit of angels popping up to tell them what's going, on, what's going on. They weren't given a divine birth announcement or anything. There was just a star. And a few guys with hearts open enough to realize what that had to mean. <laughs> now, I don't know about you guys, but that sounds way more like what it means to listen to the voice of God than anything I've ever heard from a human preacher, a teacher, a counselor, or any king or ruler I've ever come across. But that's where we are now. We are here at the beginning of today's gospel reading with these two very, very different expressions of authority. On the one hand, we have Herod, and on the other, we have our astrologians from the East. Herod gets first mentioned in the text, of course, as men of power often do. But it takes us only 14 words to realize that this is not Herod's story. For all of the power this man has, he doesn't have the slightest clue that the messiah has been born until these three wise guys stroll into town and just start asking questions only then does he frantically call together all of his religious advisors he gathers the full array of israel's best and brightest their most educated scholars the whole group of people who really ought to have known that their own messiah had turned up and he gets them together to ask what the heck just happened by the way and this is important Take notice of the fact 
that Herod is terrified at this point. The story has only just begun, and his real agency has completely disappeared. Our astrologians here, they don't have a care in the world. They just wandered into town full of excitement and curiosity. They're just asking questions to anybody they can get a hold of. But Herod, oh boy, he has gone from the seat of kingly authority, the bright and shining light of the dawn, and ruler of all he surveys, to this kind of scared, simpering child of a man, plotting and scheming in fear just because he overheard the questions asked by wiser and better men. Of course, we all know what happens next, don't we? I mean, Herod summons these wise men to meet with him. He plays nice, and he tries to work them into his plans. He sends them off to Bethlehem, and he gives them that kingly command to come back when you're done, and to come back, and make sure you come back, and give me all the juicy details about where this cute and adorable little tiny helpless threat to my throne happens to be. Of course, while they're there, the astrologians, they do answer Herod's inquiries about the star. I mean, why wouldn't they, right? The great shining star in the sky. If Herod only took a minute and looked up, he probably would have noticed the darn thing himself. Surely wouldn't have taken him very long to consult a few of Israel's sky watchers and figure out when the star had appeared. <laughs> as slick as Herod's probably feeling in that moment, the truth is that our wise men, in their honesty, really didn't give Herod any secret or unknowable information. They only told him something he could have figured out for himself if he'd actually taken the time to open his eyes and look for it. But as Herod sends him away, their focus isn't really at all on what you'd expect from a group of foreign dignitaries who've just been in the presence of royalty that's been, uh, not just royalty, but royalty that's been trying to get them to do things and to wrap them into all this like Game of Thrones-esque manipulation. No, 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 no. None of that registers. They set out with their eyes upon the star. And it takes them directly to the place where Jesus lay. They come into the presence of the Messiah, and they're overwhelmed with joy. Now, they don't have the faintest clue what a Messiah is, of course, and they don't really seem to care about prophecies. They don't know anything about the Davidic line. They, they haven't heard a darn thing about any of these angels, what were heard on high. There's no shepherds, no mention of any of that other stuff. They just knew exactly what it was they were dealing with. God, the creator, looking on the world through human eyes at last. And once they glimpsed the face of God, once they'd gotten that moment of pure joy in their hearts, they leave their gifts at the feet of Christ the King and immediately exit stage right, walking directly out of the greatest story in history and completely ignoring absolutely everything that Herod had commanded them to do. <laughs> that, that is what real authority looks like. Not, not this pale human imitation of authority that Herod was wearing, like a, like a synthetic fur coat as he cowered within it to mask his overwhelming fear. Not the power of armies, not the threat of force, not the risks and pressures of social conformity or the, the dark looming fear of all the things that might or could happen. No, no, no. Just a couple of people looking for their creator and following a star wherever it might go. When we read this story, 
we we read it expecting to see Herod as an authority because we expect the king is going to be the agent of whatever story he's in. We expect authority to be the one that's issuing commands and expecting people to follow. We expect authority to be controlling, fearfully attentive to potential threats, and quick to respond to challenges. But God's authority, that comes from the surrendering of power rather than the firm grasping of it. And oh my Lord, look what happens when you actually do that. Our astrologians here, our wise men, they listened for God. They left their own countries behind. They wandered into the capital city of a distant foreign country where they didn't know the customs. They probably didn't even fully understand the language. And they just start asking questions about God. Questions which, by the way, were extremely threatening to entrenched power structures. And when their questions landed them in the court of those exact power structures, there was no deceit among them. There was no lying, no scheming, no tactical thinking, no, okay, crap, what do we got to say to get out of this? No, none of that. Just honesty and an eagerness to get back on their way, to get back on the road in search of the Almighty. And then the king, when the, the king, this, this ultimate tip of all these entrenched power structures, when he tries to exert his authority over them, to bend their open hearts and honest lips to his own political goals, to make them complicit in this genocide that he's limbering up to commit. They didn't respond to his evil with conflict. There was no, how dare you, good sir? There was no grand declaration of refusal, no opposition. They didn't try to start a rebellion. And at no point did they stand boldly and proud, declaring their faith in the yet unseen Christ for all the world to see. No, nope, none of that. They just walked away. And when it came time for them to follow the commands of power, they just didn't. They put the intentions of evil men behind them, laid their gifts at the feet of Christ the King, and just walked away into history. The true authority of the righteous and the good does not come from power. It comes from humble submission to the path that God has put before us. We cannot argue our way to righteousness. We can't scream our way towards grace. And we cannot fist fight our way to love. Justice is not justice when it's bought at the tip of a sword. And love is not love when it is drawn out from the blood of our enemies. In loving and serving the Lord, we are given the divine authority to be reconciled to be healers of the world, repairers of the breach, restorers of streets to live in. And you can't be that by setting the streets on fire and blowing that breach wide open. No, we do that by following the star right out of the palace, turning our backs on the corrupt authority of empire, laying our gifts before the king in humble service, and then walking out from the king's simple and lowly house into a world that will never be the same again. Look, our, our wise men here, they were no fools. It's right in the name, of course, wise men. They knew, they had to know that there was every possibility that the rage of King Herod would reach them in the end. Now, this was a man whose very next move in the Bible was to massacre just as many infants as he possibly could throughout the region just to maintain his tenuous grip on power. Of course, a man like that could harm them just as easily. But with their simple embrace of God's authority, by that simple prophetic act of just walking away, these three foreign astrologians 
are forever remembered as honorable and wise servants of the creator of all things. Thousands of years later, we are still singing songs about these three kings, while Herod King is only ever remembered for his fear, for the terror that drove him to murder, for the evil that lived and dwelled within his power-hungry heart. My friends, you want an epiphany on Epiphany Sunday? Let me tell you, this is it. This realization that kingships can be destroyed by the quiet resistance of those who simply fix their eyes on Christ and refuse the dictates of power. Our epiphany is that simple fact that sometimes the only thing that's asked of us, the only thing that God tells us we need to do to accomplish our role in the historic, world-changing work of Christ in the world, the only thing is to turn our backs to the wealthy and the powerful. To turn aside from all those people and things that we've been told we have to pander to and work with and play nice with in order to make our way through this world. Turn away from all that, lock arms with our friends, put one foot in front of the other, just walk away. So, let's take a stroll, shall we? Mm -hmm.